Super 70 Sports Podcast. Oh, hell yeah. Ah, welcome to the Super 70 Sports Podcast. I'm Ricky Cobb, and we are back with an episode of this podcast today that I can only describe as historic. You know, if you were making a list of the entertainers who are most closely associated with the 1970s, my guest today has to be right near the top. For many of us, we've welcomed him and his TV family into our homes for years and years, and in my case, literally my entire life. The Brady Bunch remains, even after all these decades, my favorite television show, hands down, and largely that's because of what it meant to me growing up an only child in a a single-parent household, and the kids on that show, those brothers and sisters, they were the family that I never had in some respects, and I don't want to go all too deeply uh, with you into that, but it's, it's meaningful these uh, uh, relationships that we feel that we forge over time when uh, actors and actresses are on our television screen day after day and, and year after year. And certainly for me, coming in from school in the afternoons, the Brady Bunch was a huge part of my daily routine for, for many years. A loving family that got into a lot of messes and trouble, but of course it was always safe. They always found their way out of it somehow. And Learned some valuable lessons along the way as as well. My guest today was the coolest Brady kid by far. I mean, come on. The the older brother, uh, I I think he was the barometer of early to mid-70s teenage cool. Just an iconic character from an iconic show. Joining me now on the Super 70 Sports Hotline, one of the most beloved actors in the history of television, and the grooviest cat to ever don a pair of bell-bottoms, Mr. Barry Williams. Barry, how are you? And good day. I'm doing just great, thank you. It's nice to be on the sports channel, but I guess my biggest affiliation would be through Don Drysdale and Wes Parker and maybe maybe, um, Joe Namath. Well, you guys had had the advantage, being a TV family, just every famous sports guy just, just came through town. That never happened in my neighborhood. (laughs) <laughs> well, it didn't happen in my neighborhood, too, but it did happen at Paramount Studios, where we fell. <laughs> so I'm going to get to that, believe me. But but first of all, what an honor to have you on this podcast. I've told people for a long time that you were a dream guest for me on oh. this show. So Well, there you go. Beyond excited. True. <laughs> Thank you. Well, take me back to the beginning, Barry. How did you land the role of a lifetime in Greg Brady? And what were your initial impressions of your castmates? Started very early, uh, way before the Brady Bunch. I had worked on, uh, I had gotten an agent and was studying acting and uh, had worked in a lot of television shows of the day. The Run for Your Lives and Dragnets and Mission Impossibles and Vaders and the Mod Squad and Marcus Welby and uh, Gomer Pyle and that girl, a lot of different shows. And this uh, audition came along of what they call a cattle call. There were literally thousands of kids to be considered and matched up and boys and girls and parents and all of that. Um, and I was submitted for it, had uh, several meetings, four of them, over the course of about five months, and screen tests on camera and interviews and readings and general meetings uh, with the executive producer and director. 
and uh, they were continually refining uh, the uh, the group. And of course, what the boys had to look like dad, and the girls had to look like mom. And uh, so I think it's a kind of a combination of of uh, experience and uh, luck and look and uh, right place, right time. And that's how it that's how it started. Of course, none of us knew that this show would begin and we filmed the pilot in 1968 and then went on the air in 1969 five years until 74 and uh we none of us knew that it would still be on to this day uh 50 almost 50 years later it's unbelievable to think that we're coming up on the 50th anniversary of the first episode airing it, it doesn't seem possible well, we ought to do something. We ought to have a little a golden anniversary party. Any I would party. say so. I, I I want to be invited. Can I be a fly on the wall at least uh, for this thing? Put together. <laughs> well, tell me. I, one of the things that I've often wondered is what is it like to become so famous in a short period of time? Because as you mentioned, you had appeared on a number of uh, prominent uh, TV shows during that time, but what's it like going from a not famous teenage actor to an extremely famous teenage actor in what would have to seem like kind of a whirlwind, I would imagine? It would probably be easier to see uh, the impact and how different it was if it had happened later in my life. Um, so I grew up uh, athletic kid, riding horses, playing baseball, surfing, and, uh, and then working. Uh, on television, but um, when the series hit, all of a sudden, kaboom, there was all this uh, national attention, uh, magazines and uh, newspapers, interviews, travel. Uh, we were recording, um, we, uh, we were putting together concert, a concert act, which we toured all over the country. So um, I can only speak to my experience, and I absolutely loved it. It was a, a reflection of the work. Um, uh, we were working hard, and it was being recognized, and that was very validating. And so it was quite welcome, and uh, and I enjoyed it. And, and I, in fact, I enjoy uh, feeling like I know people or people knowing, feeling like they know me, even even now. So uh, it was a, a good experience. It was different. It, it you know it, it it's a an imbalanced amount of attention, and uh, so. Um, it, it, things get changed as a result of that, people's reactions and what have you. I ended up going to, uh, you know, studying school and finishing school with a private tutor and at Paramount Studios. I went on to college at Pepperdine University for a short time. And then, uh, so all of those things were changed. And I was, by the time I was 20 years old, I was working, you know, most of my life was, was uh, a, a professional. You know, you've been in the public eye now for, I don't, gosh, I don't want to make you feel your age, but for going on 50 years now. Can you go out to this day in public and blend in without people wanting to come up to you and tell you, you know, how, how much you've meant to them? Well, I make friends everywhere I go is the way I like to, to think of it. Um, and uh, much of my travel is, is you know, is around you know, promoting different things or working on different projects. Um, and when you attach the name Brady, even people that say they haven't watched the Brady Bunch a couple of minutes later generally will say, ask me a question like, I never saw that Brady Bunch show. Uh, oh, by the way, how's Alice? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. With all the 
reinforcement that the uh, uh, the many many years of, of uh, being on the air, never being off the air completely. You know, it still airs on classic TV shows all over the country. Um, it's uh, people are pretty familiar with the with the brand and the character. How much did syndication? play into it being such a phenomenon because I was born in 71 so I was two and a half years old when your last episode aired in 74 and I was really a kid who picked up on it in syndication it was on in the afternoons on I think TBS and you know everywhere else too for that matter at one time or another through the years and so it became a part of my daily routine you'd come in from school I'd watch the Brady Bunch I'd flip it over to another channel watch another episode of the Brady Bunch was syndication something that just took something that was already popular and blew it up to another level? Well, I think you've explained that reality very, very well, and, and that's precisely what happened. Um, no one could have imagined uh, that you know when we were making the show that uh, there would be a, a, you know a way and an outlet and channels networks uh, where you could view a show in basically in perpetuity. Um, so. That is what's responsible for the multi-generational familiarity. That's a tremendous amount of reinforcement with one with one show. I mean, like millions and millions of half hours, over 33 million half hours of television. And so as time has gone on, uh, as you be- go from the fourth to the fifth to the sixth grade, you've got another group coming up from fourth and the fifth and the sixth grade and everybody's watching or many people are watching the uh, the show which has reinforced it and created a, a, a very strong association absolutely I, I and new brady bunch fans are being made all the time i, I would venture to say i even have two kids <laughs> that would agree with you <laughs> well at the top you mentioned some of the sports stars that that came through such as Wes Parker, uh, Deacon Jones uh, is another one. Don Drysdale, Joe Namath, obviously. The the episode, uh, The Dropout, where Don Drysdale just conveniently, Mike is uh, designing a house for him, so Don just drops by, uh, you know, bit, Big D, and uh, takes an interest in your pitching, gives you some encouragement, and uh, you get stars in your eyes, uh, uh, being a, a bonus baby. What was it like meeting Don Drysdale, and what was it like for you just as a kid seeing these, you know, mega star athletes coming by? Were you were you starstruck by these guys at that time in your life? Completely. I mean, completely starstruck. These were the icons, the legends of the sports world. Um, we knew it. Don had just finished uh, yet another World Series uh, and had retired from the L.A. Dodgers not long before. Uh, he was an imposing figure, a six six four, I believe. Big guy, and, yeah. Yeah, very very tall, very you know very strong, and he was one of the most feared pitchers in all of baseball at the time. I, I believe it was he who had the uh, uh, one of mine, two of yours uh, philosophies, and uh, who gets hit with a with a. That's a fact. <laughs> That's a fact. He and Bob Gibson are the two guys that they talk about the most, that they would not hesitate to knock you down or or stick one in your ribs if they uh, felt that it was uh, called for. But in comes one of the nicest people I've ever met. Um, absolutely no, no ego, 
um, uh, or pretentiousness. He he was not just friendly, but he didn't run and hide in his dressing room between takes. He, he would have um, uh, my my Brady bunch brothers, um, Peter and Bobby, come out would would play catch in between. He literally did show me how to how he you know fingered the ball for and held the ball for a uh, a, a curveball and fastball. Wow! Uh, just really, really a, a nice guy. We were we were just just thrilled. You know, another thing about about that, if I may. Sure. Um, I I recently saw that episode, and my son is 15, and he's looking at what he wants to be, and he you know, he's he lives uh, most of the time in New York, and uh, so he you know he, he he's a big big Yankee fan. He wants to, he thinks he might want to be a, a baseball player. And I was watching the show, uh, the Brady show with, with uh, Don Drysdale, and Don was going into what the life of a baseball player is like, uh, the travel, uh, how hard it is on the family, the, the schedule, uh, how you really amount to not who you are, but what your stats tell the uh, you know the the, the other the um, ball team owners you are, um, and. You know, he didn't paint a you know a real rosy picture of the life of a of a professional baseball player, and uh, I want my son to be sure and catch that episode again <laughs> so he understands the reality of it too. Yeah, I, I it's it's just so I- incredible as I look back on this. You know, Namath, for instance, Joe Namath, who is to this day is an incredible star in the in the world of sports, but in 1973. Uh, you know, there were few, if any, uh, bigger stars in the world of sports than Joe Willie Namath. Uh, I've got to imagine that that was uh, quite a stir on the set when uh, when you guys landed him for the guest spot. Yes, especially for Florence Henderson. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so that was a, a big thrill too, and and the same with with Joe in terms of attitude and friendliness and accessibility and playing catch and. I see Joe from time to time now, and uh, maybe 10, 15 years ago, I hadn't seen him quite a while, and I was wondering if he'd even remembered. Oh, my gosh. Just, <laughs> he, he remembers the day. He remembers the part. He remembers where we were, and his daughter, uh, it, I think in her 20s now, is, was a big, is a big fan of the Brady Bunch, too. So that's been uh, and, and is still uh, very much an active part of his memory. Well, that that's tremendous. I, the athletes, obviously, for me, growing up as a as a sports fan, I always enjoyed those episodes. And I think for many of us, some of the most favorite episodes uh, through the years were the vacation episodes. Definitely, you yeah, guys. For us too. Oh, yeah. You guys took the best vacations. They were they were uh, usually fraught with. Uh, drama and unexpected things that were going on, but you guys we ju- knew that they would all work. <laughs> we did, and you guys looked like you had so much fun. Uh, what, how do you rank the uh, the vacations, just from uh, the standpoint of being an actor and and uh, going to these places and getting to do some neat stuff? Well, there were three major uh, trips. One was the Cincinnati's Kings uh, Kings Island. Um, that would probably be three, and number two would be the uh, Grand Canyon, and number one would, of course, be the, the three-part episode that we did from from Oahu in Hawaii, um, because I was surfing and we were outdoors, and that I mean, I, that was uh, pretty much as as good as it gets for a surfer. And the only thing I've been longer than Greg Brady is a surfer, 
and when we were out filming there we had rented the whole beach from the from the city and all of the you know and the waves and we had a production team out there so we're out there with paid uh extras as surfers and uh, well pretty much greg had any any, any choice of waves he wanted. <laughs> Hold on, guys. I, I got this one. Thanks. <laughs> I'll have, uh, have the whole wave to myself. It was uh, very special. Well, it was a pretty good showcase for you, too, because for, for people who uh, wouldn't have had any idea that you possessed that ability, I think everybody was watching it saying, whoa, you know, Greg, Greg doesn't have a stunt guy here. He's really out there doing it. Right. And actually, that, that was written in for me. So uh, there's a little backstory to that one. I, uh, when I when I read the script, they knew that I was a surfer, uh, but they wanted to use a stunt double, and I went in and pled my case, and I embellished it, I will admit, and I told them that I was, uh, you know, an award-winning champion surfer <laughs> of many different contests, and I, I certainly was, you know, could, it could surf pretty well, but I thought maybe they would be more assured, it would be more assuring to, if they thought I'd won contests, and they finally agreed to let me surf. And then I then I slipped in I, uh, this this little idea. I thought I said, but now, however, uh, I've done most of my surfing on the West Coast uh, near, in California, and the waves in Hawaii they're very different. And I think it would save you time and money if you sent me to Hawaii like maybe a week early to practice, and that way we uh, could economize on your expenses. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very compelling case. That you make. I got an extra week in Hawaii. (laughs) (laughs) Well, tell me about the wipeout because obviously the 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 tiki is is working its bad luck mojo and you wipe out. But that wipeout was was not scripted, as I understand it. Well, the uh, the fall I took was not scripted. The wipeout was. I mean, we knew the character was going to Greg was going to wipe out, and it was because of the the bad luck of the tiki and. what have you, what uh, we didn't prepare for was the shooting schedule was much, much longer, took much more time than they had allotted anyway for other reasons. And um, the tides changed. So we started in the morning, but as, as the tide receded and, and it started going out, there were coral heads out at this beach that, that ended up sticking up out of the water. And um, I didn't know that until I had taken off on the wave that actually they used on television. And I came and I saw this this hard coral that's very sharp, that you know, can be very, very dangerous, this coral head. And I tried to maneuver, uh, and I was headed right for it, and I tried to maneuver around it unsuccessfully. And so it, it appears that I would have hit my head on that coral head. But underwater, when I hit the water, I, I was able to flip around, and I hit my hit it with my feet, uh, which cut my feet, and it ended the surfing, but at least I was okay. Yeah. And so that was, uh, and then they didn't want to use it. They, the, the network felt it was too, it looked too dangerous. Yeah, right. <laughs> Some such nonsense. So anyway, they ended up using it, and, uh, you know, uh, there's uh, art imitating life. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about the King's Island trip, because my oldest daughter is uh, 15 years old now, and she's been a Brady Bunch fan since I introduced her to the show when she was probably about five years old, and the King's Island episode is her favorite. So I just wanted to know, what, what was that experience like going to Cincinnati? Because you guys were really at the park and, and watching it on TV. There's 
obviously park uh, patrons milling about and doing their thing. I would have to imagine that the cast of the Brady Bunch uh, descending on Cincinnati, Ohio, must have been uh, pretty exciting for the locals. It sure was. And I can't say that we were entirely prepared for the impact that we would have. This we're now three years into the series, and a lot of people are watching it, and it was heavily promoted that we were coming to Kings Island. And um, it was, uh, and, the, and the amusement park was not even yet completed. So uh, there were many of the things inside the park that were done, but outside was a, like a one-story little kind of motel sitting by itself. And there was no uh, uh, vegetation around it just to pave the parking lot and put up this little motel situation, which is where we were all staying and very vulnerable. <laughs> and part people that were visiting the park knew we were staying there, so they would come by and try and check out, you know, uh, Marsha Brady when she was changing clothes or getting ready <laughs> or um, to see what uh, Jan Brady looked like when she was taking a nap or sleep, you know, that kind of thing, as well as at the park itself. I, I wrote uh, Growing Up Brady, uh, kind of detailing that experience, and I called the chapter uh, In a Fishbowl. and that about sums it up i i you know speaking of the book growing up brady which uh which i highly recommend by the way it's hard to believe that book came out i want to say around 92 initially Uh, initially yes and a terrific book i know you've since updated it and like i say if you're a brady bunch fan uh, make sure you pick up a copy of growing up brady it's uh, well worth the time and you know I, i want to ask you about robert reed because you know, Mike Brady, the, the all-American dad, they were so widely admired and, and, and a great character as well. But a lot of people, if they haven't read your book, might be surprised to know that pretty much from Jump Street, Robert was philosophically at odds with uh, Sherwood Schwartz and a, a, a lot of the way that the characters were portrayed and just the way that the show was constructed. Could you go into a little bit how that dynamic played out through the through the five seasons of the show well a couple of things one is robert reed only agreed to do the pilot episode the first episode of the show because he was confident it would never be sold he thought he would go in and make some money and do this little family show and then they would show it around the networks no one would be interested and it would go away and he would just go on with his leading man career slight miscalculation just like <laughs> then we started the show and in the first uh, nine weeks, he tried to get himself fired three times. Um, he wanted to quit. He, he was like, over it. And he was fundamentally at odds with the style of humor from the producer, Sherwood Schwartz. So that, that was in, that was, those lines had been drawn. Robert, very classically trained, Shakespearean trained, uh, Royal Academy, dramatic art, New York, very serious as an actor from the Defenders with E.G. Marshall versus uh, Sherwood Schwartz, who was uh, a gag and joke writer for uh, Red Skelton and won awards for it, from Bob Hope, uh, had created the, the show uh, Gilligan's Island and its kind of buffoonery. And he was bringing you know, another kind of light sensibility to the comedy of the Brady Bunch, and Bob didn't, Robert Reed did not like it. So the, there were epic battles between Robert and the studio, Robert and the network, Robert and the producer, although he always protected the kids. And uh, we were 
Uh, he really, really cared deeply about us. We were the most consistent thing, I think, in his life. And um, so we weren't at the effect of all of that. We weren't at the brunt of it, but it sometimes halted uh, production. Uh, he refused to be in one episode, the one where uh, Bobby's hair tonic makes Greg's hair turn orange. And uh, it, it, it became a, a struggle of great proportions for the uh, the business side, the production side, and the talent side. And that episode that you're referring to was the was the last episode to air um, in last in episode the, to be filmed. Yeah, in in the series. And so, uh, what were the circumstances uh, surrounding the fact that the show was not renewed for a sixth? season because my understanding is is at the time that you concluded filming of the fifth season there, there was no at that point thought that the show was going to be over well that's accurate and the ratings reflected that it was as popular uh, or more popular than it was than at any other time and so we had every reason to expect it to be picked up we were told by the network it would be picked up for at least another season but as they got deeper and deeper into it and started through the negotiations, all the contracts uh, that we had had expired, including production. So uh, that was another – it was going to be a lot more expensive for the network. Um, but I think one of the biggest stumbling blocks is Sherwood Schwartz had laid down the, uh, the law that he would not continue with Robert Reed. How do you suppose that would have been – would he would have been killed off, as they say, in television? I have no idea, and I think I don't think the network bought any of the suggestions. Um, I wasn't really involved in that aspect of it. Um, if he would have, if that would have happened, or he would have been replaced, or the character would have been minimized, or they would have focused more on the kids going off into their own worlds. Greg, you know, would have been going off into college, um, and uh, Marsha might have been going to fashion school, etc. So. Um, I, I just I really don't know, but they were unable to resolve it, and they just felt that it was more trouble than it was worth. Tell me about the the variety show. What, what were your thoughts on that, and some of the various other attempts over the course of the fifteen years or so after the end of the show to kind of reboot the Brady Bunch in one form or another? Which incarnations of those did? Did you uh, like the best? Were there any that, that you were less high on? Well, I, uh, I, I think that uh, A Very Brady Christmas uh, was, well, kind of simple and sweet, but I thought it had a lot of heart in it. Uh, we had a cartoon show. Um, the Variety Hour, I was particularly excited about it. And I thought, wow, this would be a great way to you know, show some other dimensions of Barry Williams and Greg Brady as a singer, as a dancer, as a performer. I was very excited about that. The show itself uh, was, well, let's say corny at best. But uh, although we had these tremendous guest stars, uh, Milton Berle, uh, we had uh, Tina Turner, uh, we had Rip Taylor, we had Vincent Price, uh, we had... Uh, uh, oh, gosh, it, it never, it just didn't stop. Rich Little... Um, was uh, was one of our guests, the, the uh, uh, impressionist, and uh, so that was very exciting. It just was kind of in a format that was of the day and um, silly, so um, it didn't last that long. Um, I thought the show that 
after uh, Very Brady Christmas, we came back as another series, The Brady's. Not very creative with the titles. <laughs> Brady Bunch, Very Brady Christmas, uh, Brady Variety Hour, uh, The Brady's. And I think that was too ambitious. We were all grown up. We had our own families. And, uh, I mean, they were just... <laughs> They ran out of space on the televisions for all the squares that we had to use between the the wife and the kids that uh, the child that I had and the kids that the other people had. And Marcia becomes an alcoholic in one episode and gets it resolved twenty minutes later. Those kinds of things were just uh, was, ambitious. Was that the one where where Bobby was was wheelchair bound? Yes, he was a, a race car driver and ended up uh, in a crash and. Um, uh, so he he was getting pushed around in the whole series in a wheelchair. Um, so, it's a little too uh, heavy. Think, yeah, it, a, little, it, a little too much. A little too, nobody what, wanted what to see Bobby to, paralyzed. That you know. Right. So it's for, for what we go to the Brady's for. That's not uh, that wasn't hitting the the right uh, tone. I don't think. So uh, let me ask you. I mean, you are synonymous with with Greg Brady to the point that I I wonder do do people come up to you and approach you. And treat you as though Greg Brady is a real person, and you are in fact Greg Brady. Does that happen? Oh yeah, sure. But these are the same people that you can't explain that television is not real life. So how, so so how do you play that? Do you just say, "Well, thank you very much." Uh, Absolutely, I appreciate you know, it. Pleasant. Yeah, it'd be pleasant, and I try and look at it from what they're seeing. You know, I, I mean, it's it's really not about me. They're not really responding. To me, they're responding to their association and identification with the character that I played on television. So that's what they're seeing. So, uh, I, you know, I kind of have to be that, you know, I try and be pleasant and nice. And, you know, it's kind of like objectualizing a little bit, a lot. And, uh, you know, people are nice anyway. And that's, uh, that helps. If they were rude, that would be, you know, that'd be, there, there are lines to be drawn. It would be awkward, but I suppose when you've dealt with it numerous times, you you just get used to it like anything else. It's hardest on the people I'm with, I think. My children, you know, because it takes time away from dad um, or my wife or friends if I'm out because we might be trying to get from point A to point B and, you know, people are pulling me in different directions or asking things from me, but... Uh, all in all, you know, it's a fair trade, uh, in, and in fact, a very privileged one. I, I'm, I'm very grateful to the show and being a part of it, and and I'm still working. Well, let me hit the lightning round here with you. I got a few more questions, and then I want to get into the things that you've got going on today. So this is just this is kind of all over the place. Just consider this a, a Brady obsessed fan just uh, sp- springing a few random questions on you. Favorite episode? Johnny Bravo. John, uh, Greg Brady becomes uh, was offered the job as a as a rock the rock star we all knew he should have been and was um, and uh, that was a great a, a fun episode. Here's one. This is one I've always wondered about. Uh, you you are her t- TV sign. What did Carol do all day? You, you, you had Alice taking care of a lot of the nuts and bolts. Mike is obviously uh, hard at work on his ar- architecture. What, what was Carol doing just on an average weekday when the kids were in school, you think? Arts and crafts. Uh, I, I know she, they, everybody was into um, uh, um, needlepoint. 
and rug point and um, various things. But, you know, basically, she would stay at home. And, uh, you know, she, she was not defined as, as, you know, with a job, but she had the responsibility of uh, being the matriarch. The AstroTurf so not, Backyard. So not much. <laughs> okay, so not much. So we're clear. All right, I, well, the, the AstroTurf Backyard. Love it. What's more 70s? That's so quintessentially television land in the 70s that you guys have an artificial surface there in the in the back. Did you ever catch up a, a sneaker and a seam or something? Did, you know, I, th- I felt sorry for Joe Namath when he came on the show because yeah. with his with his terrible knees and he finds the one family uh, in California uh, who doesn't have a, a grass uh, backyard. And that was not padded either, I might add. Uh, probably the, the most difficult thing for me regarding the astroturf grass in the backyard was as an actor pretending to mow it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That, now that you you were really using your acting chops yeah, at, right. at that point. I mean, you sold it though. I mean, it was believable, is what I'm telling you. <laughs> the, the driving contest. I'm. I, I still refuse to accept that. Marsha could have beaten Greg in a driving contest. Uh, but you and me both, that was the most ridiculous uh, concept for a episode ever. Uh, I don't think anybody believed that. Um, I even played it like it was unbelievable. It was uh, to think that Marsha Brady could beat me in any kind of driving contest. It's just, it's just way too far over the top. There's simply no way. The chin-up, bo- you know, Bobby getting you in the chin-up contest, okay, maybe. You know, it was two two to one, yeah. Yeah. you know, but the, but the driving contest, not buying it. Got to ask you about the uh, infamous episode where you were stoned in the driveway. Okay. A lot of the audience may not know that, and I know it's, I hope, the, hope that they're sitting down at this time, but it was the 70s, and you, you, you partook a bit of the, of the ganja, and were unexpectedly, as I understand it, called to come in and shoot a scene and we're in a compromised state of mind I thought this was going to be very exciting um, I didn't have much experience with uh, cannabis at the time but I did feel that this was an opportunity for me to recreate the great Brady character from top to bottom except no one was having it and I had all this inner dialogue going on and um, how uh, you know how I could make this colorful and creative and I was not just fixing the bike, but I was pretending to uh, uh, fix the chain on the bike and have it, uh, you know, uh, ha- add gears to it. Um, what finally happened when it gets, you know, before they start shooting, you know, it's quiet on the set, and the bell goes, and please roll sound, and this guy yells sound, and and the director, and action, and then it's like that red light goes on the camera kind of thing when Cindy Olsen is staring in the game show and fr- frozen. That's what it felt like for me. The scene did not go very well. It is the scene. It's at the beginning of one of the episodes when Dad's coming home in the, the, the trusty station wagon with the rowboat on the top of it, and we are headed out to, uh, to go camping. And um, I am uh, inquiring as to why there is a boat on top of his car. Which is a very good question. It's season four, Law and Disorder, for the uh-huh. folks out there who, who, who may want to check out a baked Barry Williams. It's it's season four, Law and Disorder. Uh, Got to ask you, no toilet in the in the shared upstairs bathroom. Is 
bit of trivia that might surprise some. So not only are you have you got six kids sharing a facility, but no actual facility. Uh, yeah, commode. The that's an F, <laughs> that was an FCC directive. Um, the, uh, the you are not allowed to show a porcelain bowl uh, that is used for as the facilities. Uh, on television at that time, and, and I thought, well, wait a minute. I've seen you know, like the tidy bowl guy, you know, a lot of times. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember that was a glass bowl, ah. porcelain? And so I don't, whatever you know, the laws and things and commissions and restrictions and all that stuff, um, you know. And then you know, cut and dissolve to uh, to, to later television shows. And, uh, you know, they're smoking weed in the, in the bathroom. <laughs> How times change, right? Yeah. So the famous scene where Marsha gets hit in the face by the football, I've wondered through the years, was that some type of Nerf football or something else that was soft and made to look like a football? What exactly did Marsha get hit in the nose with there? Real football. Really? Yeah, it was a football. It just wasn't thrown across the stage. It wasn't, you know, thrown across, you know, from like ten yards. It was kind of lobbed uh, up against her face, and she did it three times. Really? Mm-hmm. How about that? Got to ask you this: When was the last time that you sat down and watched an entire? Like, if, let me put it another way: If you're channel surfing and you come by an episode of The Brady Bunch, what are the what are the odds that Barry Williams just leaves it there and and, and watches an episode? Well. That's an interesting question because I think there could be a gap of 30 years or 35 years where I never saw an episode. Really? This past, this past year, the MeTV, who is a, the, a network devoted to classic television, and they have a Brady brunch on Sundays. And they called and invited me to be their spokesperson for all of last year, and I'm, I'm continuing to do appearances for them this year in 2018. And uh, they run this, uh, the Brady Brunch for like three, two hours, so four episodes. MeTV is one, it's a wonderful network, and uh, I just turn, I turn it on and leave it on, typically, to get away from the news. And uh, on Sundays, if the TV's on and an episode comes on, I leave it on. So I, I, uh, this past year, I have seen many of the epi- episodes from beginning to end. How does that play? Looking back 35, 40, well, you know, 40 plus years later now and, and watching yourself at, at, at that stage of your life and um, your friends, your, your television siblings, who I, who I believe that uh, you, you certainly still have relationships with those folks. What's it like? Is it, is it just a snapshot of a, a teenager? How do, you, how do you feel about it as, a, as an o- older man? I think the way to make that uh, question the most relatable is to think of it like home movies, uh, because when we're making the movie, it, you know, we're in life and in real time. It takes four days to make, you know, a half an hour show, and so I know all of the things that happened before and after, and what it looked like, and then how it's been edited down, and you know how it's how it appears. So when I see that, I I get I, I get all that that stuff is reactivated being 16 years old, 17 years old and, and what that experience was like, or I'm looking at different stages of wardrobe, of hair, especially my gosh, of the styles. And, 
It's it's like watching you you might be watching home movies with your daughter when she was three or um, that kind of thing. To follow up on what I was just saying a second ago, what is your relationship like these days with your with your TV siblings? Great, right down the line. Um, I'm in touch with all of them. Uh, most are in LA. I, just this past weekend, uh, flew all the way to Palm. I live uh, in Branson, Missouri, which is in the Ozark Mountains at the, the southernmost part of uh, Missouri, next to the Arkansas border, <laughs> and uh, where I've done, I've been, I've worked for the last six years. I flew to Palm Desert to uh, see uh, Christopher Knight. Uh, and my TV wife, Karen Richmond from the Brady's, uh, in a uh, two-couple comedy muse, uh, comedy uh, play, and, uh, and and to hang out and support him, and you know, and, and, and be there. We piled around for a couple of days and went to, went out to dinner and saw the show and that kind of thing. So we we get together for various things, whether personal appearances or in this case just personal uh, reasons uh, quite often. Uh, Chris also came to Branson when I got married uh, this past July. That's terrific. Why is that so heartwarming to all of us who are fans of the show? I think people, and and I do too, I think people want to know or be reassured that what they're watching has some, and the chemistry that we see on television is real. I mean, to, to, to think that you and Chris Knight are still buddies, still see each other and, and hang out from time to time, just, it makes me feel good. Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm, really, I'm really happy that it's worked out that way. It's been like having a second family. Well, Barry, before I let you go, tell me what you've got going on these days, because I know you're a heck of a busy guy, and you've got a lot of irons in the fire. You're still out there performing and doing things. And in fact, you were telling me before we started taping, uh, my mouth uh, was watering through the first few minutes of the podcast, because you were telling me about something pretty special that's going on, uh, educating me, in fact, about Wagyu beef, I believe it's called. Yes, it is Wagyu beef. Actually, good for you. You got you pronounced it correctly, <laughs> Wagyu. Um, Wagyu beef is the uh, beef that is commonly known here in the States as Kobe. It's really, really high quality, no, no antibiotics, no hormones, uh, very, very special diets, uh, a special bloodline of beef that is, uh, it's, it's unlike anything that you can get commercially. And uh, consequently, it's very expensive, uh, but I have become spokesperson for a company called Kobe Club. Uh, Kobe's K-O-B-E, KobeClub.com. And they, uh, this company had brought the bloodline here about 25 years ago and had been breeding and then rebreeding um, these, uh, these cattle in three different states and have just now made them available uh, on a membership basis and affordable. So instead of paying $100 for a 10-ounce you know, New York strip, uh, it's, it's, it's considerably less, less than a quarter of that. And um, memberships are available, and people are really enjoying it, and it's, it, is, it is far and away um, the best beef I've ever tasted. It sounds delicious. And when we can, can we can we say Barry Williams sent us when we uh, no, sure. when we go to the website and sign up? Now, tell me as well, where, where can your fans keep up with everything that's going on in your career? I'm available all kinds of places. There's Facebook, and uh, but also um, my uh, the website is Barry Williams Official. I put that on there because 
So like I, I, I Googled my own name, and I had like six different websites <laughs> that I knew nothing about. Uh, so BarryWilliamsOfficial.com, and uh, um, you can communicate there, leave messages, sign up, become part of it. Uh, I put in news and events and what's going on, personal appearances. I have projects coming up, uh, a musical called Toy Shop, which is going to tour up and down the mostly the eastern seaboard and in the uh, toy shop and it's a christmas show so that'll be november december so you know the, the, you know the, what's happening now barry williams com. check it out well barry i truly say this and, and and i always want to be polite to any guests that i have on the show but believe me when i tell you one of the great thrills of my experience in hosting this podcast is having you on today truly uh, an honor a privilege to speak with you and uh, you know the stories that you've told today so terrific well thanks Ricky I've, I've enjoyed it too I wish you the best and uh, and a big uh, hello to all of your fans out there my thanks to Barry Williams what a joy to discuss all things Brady with one of my favorite stars and and that's it maybe I just hop on my horse now right off into the sunset my work is done here I've met Greg Brady where do you go from there I love this too much to quit. So how about we come back next time and talk to a basketball Hall of Famer? And I would say next week, but I'm going to be posting the next episode almost concurrently with this one. So if you don't see it yet, you're going to see it by tomorrow. My guest will be the co-MVP of the 1974-75 ABA season. And all he did that year was average 30 points and 14 rebounds. My guest will be Big Mac. George McGinnis will join me to discuss his legendary career. We're going to talk about everything from his winning Mr. Basketball in the state of Indiana in 1969 to winning a pair of ABA championships with the Indiana Pacers and ultimately joining forces in Philadelphia with the man that he shared that 1974-75 ABA MVP award with, Julius Irving. And, of course, we're going to be talking about his 2017 induction into the Basketball Hall of Fame and the huge gala 50th ABA reunion anniversary celebration that's going to be coming up April 7th in Indianapolis. So, until then, which will be very soon, I'm Ricky Cobb reminding you to never miss an episode of the Super 70 Sports Podcast.